Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 5 again. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very different from his parables. Both of them were formal presentations. Of course, you know, one's on a mountainside and one was delivered from a boat on the lake. Um, but in his sermon, he does not rely on analogies as he did with the parables, but he uses straight talk and real-life examples. Uh, if he says uh, to beware of something, he gives you an example of someone who's doing the wrong thing. And he says, don't do that, basically. Prior to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had announced that the kingdom of heaven was arriving. And he demonstrated this with supernatural acts. For instance, the healing and the exorcism. And in his sermon, what he does is he reveals how a person is shaped by the kingdom of heaven. And that um, the idea is that those who read the Sermon on the Mount or who heard it would want their lives to be shaped that way, or they would surrender to their lives being shaped that way as, as God worked with them. Um, for us, it allows us to learn the practice of Christian spirituality in lived experience because it is so direct and so plain. Now, the Beatitudes are a picture of the ideal citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So um, moving into this, this deeper insight of the kingdom of heaven and the spirituality of Christ, um, we get this picture of what it, like, what it looks like to be brought this direction by him. All right, that's confusing, but too bad. Um, the, the, now, the Beatitudes are heavy with mystery because they're so contradictory to the values of our society, and they were just as contradictory at that time, not only to, say, the Roman world, the, uh, the Greco-Roman world, the secular world, but also to the religious world. Um, people just weren't saying these things. So today it's verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness. Um, I've gone over this before, children. Uh, and, um, but I don't mind going over it again. The fundamental thing we must remember about re righteousness is that it is relational. This is a relational word. Now, it may have ethical implications, but if you approach it as being ethical, you miss the essence of it. And then you worry about if you're keeping all of the commandments. You're worried about your own uh, ethics. That becomes your, your, the basis of your concern. And that's not supposed to be uh, the way we live. It's the way the Pharisees lived. But it's not, it wasn't right, and Jesus criticizes it. The, the Greek word that's translated righteousness referred to a person's obligations to God and others. Um, there were sp 
specific expectations attached to every relationship you had with another person and with God. For example, uh, Paul says in Romans 13, render to all what is due them. And he talks about giving honor to whom honor is due and respect to whom respect is due and, and so on. Um, so depending on your relationship with another person, the, the nature of that relationship, there are certain things that should be put into it or certain ways you should act towards that person. You know, it's interesting. Paul goes on to say, owe no one anything except to love one another. For whoever loves fulfills the law. Love is the one obligation we have towards others that never goes away. And, and love applies to every relationship. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't have to love this person. Well, yes, you do. But what do you think love is? Do you think it's all hugs and kisses? Do you think it's friendship, uh, um, doing things together, uh, always dying for them? No, love, love sometimes means being with, severe with, with someone. Uh, someone who does not know any better than to call you in the middle of the night for something trivial. And, um, oh, okay, so we get that one. Um, uh, so in loving them, you teach them boundaries. You teach them etiquette. You say, this is not good. You calling me in the middle of the night like this, don't do it again or I'll block you. You know? Now, you're teaching them a boundary and uh, showing them that they need to respect that boundary. And that is love. I mean, you know, when we train our children to look both ways before they cross the street, that's a loving act. And sometimes we need to do things like this for each other. We just didn't get this growing up. Uh, some of our homes were very deficient in terms of, of courtesy and politeness and, and etiquette. And... Uh, so we learn it along the way, and people who love us help us to learn it. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been corrected by people who love me. <laughs> At least they say they do. All right, so um, in the Old Testament, righteousness is often paired with justice. So what is righteous between two people is justice when it's applied to society. And God looks for both justice and righteousness. Are the courts being fair? Are the uh, corporate executives being fair to the employees? Um, does the corporation show integrity regarding the people who um, provide services or products to it? Or do they make sure that it is all always healthy for those people in whatever factory they are uh, weaving the, the material that's used in clothing. Justice has this, this social concern. Righteousness, it's the same thing. It's, it's caring for others and, uh, and acting towards others as is befitting the relationship. And this is not only God's will, justice for society and righteousness between people. You see how the two go together? Um, it, the, it's like building blocks. 
one person is right with another person or they're, they're right with each other and then they're right with their family and then right with their community and the community is right with the neighboring community and it's the whole world eventually it's all of society and that's what God wants to see the earth filled with justice and then the individuals practicing righteousness and he says that these are two of the virtues that he delights in and so it's not just his will but he takes pleasure in this I think that God takes pleasure in loving relationships. It would be difficult for us to, to feel the shock that Jesus' audience felt when he spoke the words in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure everyone at that moment just went, oh, Okay, that eliminates me. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were paragons of righteousness. Um, They were the most righteous people that you could think of in that society. They spent, the scribes spent their whole lives in the law, learning it and explaining it and making copies of it. And the Pharisees spent their whole lives practicing every minute detail of the law. And if the law was not minute enough in its detail, they created a lot more minute details that they followed also. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass theirs or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's all about the kingdom of heaven And now it's all about righteousness. But listen, Jesus is not saying you have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. He's not talking about quantity. You have to do more than what they're doing. He's rather talking about the nature of their righteousness. There was a problem there. And what was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness? Like I said, righteousness is relational they made it moral and legal. And, and that just turns it around because if it's moral and legal, now I'm concerned about myself and my behavior um, like strictly between me and God or between me and the law. God may not even be involved. In fact, if I have the law and I live the law and that's good enough, then I don't even have to interact with God, which is convenient sometimes. I can just say, I did what the law required, I'm okay. And, and, you know, for people like me, it's like, I found the bare minimum of what the law required, and I did that. I'm always asking, where's the line? You know, you know how close can I get to the edge before I fall over? And, and that's what people mean when they say, is it okay for a Christian to dance? I mean, I, I, that question probably hasn't been asked since the 1950s. But we asked it in the churches I grew up in. Um, but, but we're looking for the line. Can I, can I do this and still be a Christian? And, um, and those, are the, those are the issues that come up, and they're the issues that came up for the rabbis when they were asked about issues like divorce, and they found loopholes in the law. So yes, you can do this, and you're still you know, right with God. 
you're still righteous. But Jesus, again, is saying, no, this isn't like that. It's not relational. Um, and he points out um, in chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, the first six verses, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. And he, he points out the problem with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in all of chapter 23. And all through the chapter, he's saying, woe to you. For example, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the problem with their righteousness. They, they put on a show. They put on a show of righteousness that wasn't even the real thing. The kingdom of heaven is all about righteousness. In fact, in chapter 6, Jesus will say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Um, in fact, the kingdom and righteousness are the heart of Matthew's gospel. We could say that um, Matthew's gospel is about the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show us what righteousness looks like. He, he does not vary away from that. The very next verse, next week as we look at it, um, shows us what righteousness looks like. And the climax of the whole book of Matthew comes in chapter 25 where Jesus talks about the judgment and how the goats will be separated from the sheep and he'll look to those on his right hand and say, you know, uh, welcome uh, into my father's kingdom because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in and so on. And then he says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And then he responds, well, in that you've done these things for the least of my brethren, you've done them for me. What's righteousness? It's doing these very things for the neediest people. It's caring for the weak and the vulnerable and the poor and the sick and those in prison. I mean, there's the, the list that he gives is a picture of righteousness. Okay, I'm just going to take a breath and let that sink in. If I were to identify the focal point of my life, the majority of my thoughts and my emotions, that focal point would be me. I worry a lot about myself. What problem is upsetting me right now? How is it going to be solved? 
But it's possible to shift from my focal point, or, or for me as the focal point, to someone else as the focal point. At least in this moment, someone else becomes the focal point. I'm, a, I'm asking, what problems are they having, and how can I be part of the solution to their problems? How can I help them? I was with my, my son a couple months ago at an orthopedic office, and uh, we were sitting in the waiting room, and this woman came uh, out from the doctor's office. Um, uh, she was older, and she was hobbling, and um, she was sort of complaining as she walked from the doctor's office to the door about the pain she was in. She's in an orthopedic office, so, you know, no telling. And um, she's bent over sort of, well, I'm sitting right by the door, and if, I'd have to be an idiot to not jump up and open the door for her. And she looked at me, and she was so thankful. She, she smiled a big smile. She said, thank you. And I said, it, it's not easy. And she said, no, it's not easy. And, and then she said something like, but they're still good. And I said, right. And then she got out a little bit further, and she said, no, it's, it's not easy. And on she went. Um, well, that was, that, there was no problem there. And for a moment, her being the focal point. And, and trying to help by opening a door or expressing some empathy or, or something, some connection. So it's possible to shift. To, that's, that, you know, that's pretty slimy if that's the best I've ever done. But still, <laughs> it's something, and it, and it doesn't take much. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, not, hey, I'm really cool at this because I'm not. Um, have you ever noticed that when you're dealing with, with someone else who's, who's, you know, got a problem, that it's much easier to be objective with them and logical with them and even creative regarding solutions than it is with yourself? You know, have you ever looked in the mirror and said, well, why don't you try that stuff? You know, oh, I don't, that's not for me. Um, th that won't work for me. We've got all the rationalizations already. Why well, it won't work for us. But, oh, boy, are we brilliant with advice for others. We see so clearly. But maybe by helping others, it will develop more objectivity, uh, more rational thinking, more creativity. And maybe these will actually become tools to help us move more smoothly through our own lives. There's now research shows a correlation between people who use personal pronouns, I, me, mine, my, um, a lot, and heart disease, and that heart attacks are likely to be more fatal for people who use a lot of personal pronouns. I'm a goner if I have a heart attack. <laughs> it, oh. um, but again, we're trying to make that shift. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's righteousness. Desmond Tutu, in a conversation with the Dalai Lama, said, when you are stuck in, tra in a traffic jam, you can deal with it in one of two ways. You can let the frustration really eat you up. But since none of us do that. Or you can look around at the other drivers and see that one might have a wife who has pancreatic cancer. It doesn't matter if you don't know exactly what they might have, but you know 
they are all suffering with worries and fears because they are human. And you can lift them up and bless them. You can say, please, God, give each one of them what they need. That's shifting the focal point to others, to the other drivers. All right, so in this beatitude, the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a a beautiful moment in John chapter 9 where Jesus is people watching. He's not sitting at the mall, but he's someplace, maybe the the public square, but he's, he's someplace where he can see lots of people and he's just observing them. And as he observes them, he feels compassion. I think that if you were there, you would see the sadness in his eyes. He's just shaking his head. These these poor people, they look so distressed and despairing, like sheep without a shepherd, is the language that that Matthew uses. This, This is an instance of righteousness. Who is completely content? with the world the way it is today. My guess is the only person who could possibly be content with the way the world is today is someone who benefits from the world being the way it is today. And that benefit has to outweigh their concern for human life. Charlottesville the two extremes meeting each other, and they can't meet each other without violence between them. Violence is so opposite to righteousness. It, it obliterates righteousness. You think either side is righteous when they resort to violence? And both the extreme sides went to the protest with homemade shields to protect them from the violence of others. And many of them went with weapons to commit acts of violence against others. Who can be content with a world like that? And there's all kinds of violence in, in homes around, the, around our country. Um, if you were a foster parent, you'd have some knowledge of this, and you you would not be surprised to hear that it's in wealthy homes and it's in poor homes. There's all kinds of violence in the world. We have all this saber rattling in North Korea, and nothing is being done to reduce the tension that is mounting there, and the threats abound. There is enough wrong in this world for us to feel oppressed by it. Peter describes Lot living in Sodom. He says Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. It's because he knew what was righteous that what they were doing disturbed him. 
Now, my mom is a very sensitive person. She always has been. And there came a point in her adulthood when she stopped watching the nightly news because she would be too disturbed by it. When she read in the paper or a periodical or heard on the news anything about a child being harmed, it would haunt her for weeks. In other words, she could not let go of it. It would, it would weigh on her so heavy. My mom's an extremely empathic person. And she really connects emotionally with people and feels deeply. In a similar way, Lot was oppressed by the violence in his culture. Now, Jesus did not merely observe people uh, and think, wow, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He took action. He, he told his disciples, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send more laborers into the field. And, and you say, well, that doesn't sound like, like much action, but it is. Jesus giving them his prayer request, starts the ball rolling that leads to those prayers being answered and more labors going into the work to bring righteousness into this unrighteous field. With, with, he responds with empathy, he feels compassion, and he responds with, with action, beginning with prayer. Violence is an indicator of unrighteousness, of a world gone wrong. So early on in the time of Noah, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. But Noah stands out as being a righteous man. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh is before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Violence can reach a tipping point in which Eventually, everyone's destroyed, and we bring a nuclear winter on ourselves. There's more than enough violence in our world. It's like sometimes the electricity in the air, and you see an angry person spouting nonsense, and you get angry, and you want to spout nonsense back. Only your nonsense sounds more rational to you than their nonsense sounds. <laughs> And who can, who can observe this without hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I wish that everyone would treat each other right. Before this sermon and before the, the healings and the preaching, Jesus had been in the desert fasting. And Matthew says, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, then he became hungry. And the devil appeared to him and tempted him to satisfy his hunger by magic. And Jesus refused to do that. It's not how it works. He refused to turn a stone into bread. There was a natural way that bread was made from grain. I wish there could be a magical solution to the evil in the world. That God would just 
take his wand and spread it over the earth or around the earth. And, you know, it'd be like pixie dust or something. You know, we all smile and we're all happy and we all just flit around, you know, doing nice things for others. I wish that he'd work some kind of magic of transforming every human heart in an instant, of turning stone into bread so that people were valued more than money and, and hatred would melt away from the planet. Instead, we're left with this gnawing hunger and thirst. And, and hunger and thirst are stronger feelings than desire. We can desire intensely, but hunger and thirst are like pain in that they are a way that our body tells us something's wrong, something's missing, something's needed. And Jesus says, blessed are those who feel the pain of what's missing in the world. Hunger and thirst are more intense and gut-wrenching than desire. And if hunger and thirst are not satisfied, we enter a state of misery, of starvation and, and misery and, and dehydration. Uh, we cannot expect the world to turn itself to right. We cannot expect some corporation in the world to turn it from wrong to right. We can't look to some individual to, to heal the whole mess, to put an end to corruption and, and to fix what's broken. And so we hunger and thirst for rightness. Now, Jesus takes this, this need that we have, um, this unfulfilled hunger and thirst, and he redeems it. Like he does everything within his reach. He redeems it, and he claims it for God. He tells us to bring it to God and to look to him for the solution. And it's not going to be a magical solution because he's going to use natural means and then we become part of those natural means. We participate in the solution by becoming righteous ourselves. Hunger and thirst are powerful motivations. I mean, how many times in the evening do they send us to the refrigerator um, or to the store or to uh, you know, the um, fast food restaurant? But they can be a powerful motivation for change. What I'm doing is not satisfying the hunger or quenching the thirst. Maybe I should be doing something else. And if I want to see justice in the world, then maybe I need to address my own corruption. Maybe I should start here. How can I practice righteousness with everyone you know, so promote justice wherever I go, in whatever environment I'm in, where there are others. Hunger and thirst can be a powerful motivation for acts of compassion. And I'm, I'm really thankful that you all are so compassionate. Your support for Laundry Love, your support for the various people who have come through here to, 
minister to orphans in Russia or uh, supp uh, provide supplies for local kids going back to school, not having backpacks or notebooks or pencils and pens. Um, I'm very grateful that, that you respond righteously to human need. Uh, it blesses me. And I don't take any credit for it. I stand in awe of you. Hunger and thirst can be powerful motivation for intercessory prayer. And again, you know, back to prayer. Well, what does prayer do? Evelyn Underhill said that interest, intercessory prayer is an aspect of our spiritual life with a vast potential, which is yet largely unexplored by us. I haven't really looked into what, what supernatural force we can unleash with our intercessory prayers. That's interesting. In our emergent will and energy, uh, pardon me, in it, in intercessory prayer, our emergent will and energy can join itself to and work with the supernatural forces for the accomplishment of the work of God. Lot did not know this, but his life was intercession. Because as long as he was in Sodom, God said, I can't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So just being present in society, he was the salt of the earth. He was the light of the world. When he was removed, Sodom and Gomorrah were turned to ash. Intercessory prayer is not an activity that's merely human, one person praying for another or praying for a community or whatever. This is divine. The intercessory prayer is something that God does. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And in verse 34, Jesus intercedes for us. And in Hebrews 7, uh, verse 25, I think it says, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. So when we engage in intercessory prayer, there are two members of the Trinity who are praying with us, or our prayers are joined to theirs. We learn from Christians of far greater spiritual depth than our own that intercessory prayer turns not only our minds and our hearts toward God and others, but our will and our bodies as well. You, you, you read the lives of the saints, of the, of the Christian mystics, uh, St. Francis, or, I mean, just about any of them, and you'll find that they also were caring for lepers, were feeding the poor, were, were giving their clothes to keep others warm. They were dying at the hands of Nazis because they were protecting Jews. It goes on and on. Intercessory prayer also leads to intercessory lives and intercessory actions in the world. So it's a good place for us to go. The more we, we pray intercessory prayers, the more they fill us, the more they, they take over our thoughts and actions so that we are intercession also. We are reconcilers. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
because they will be satisfied. The only thing that can satisfy this hunger and thirst is one day seeing the world transformed, seeing it different than it is. And what will be the first signs of, that that's happening? What will be the first victories of the kingdom of heaven as it enters into our community? Um, the work that God does in my heart and in your heart. What we want to see in the world has to happen in us, and we're going to have to keep coming back to that. We can't hit our fist on the coffee table when we're watching the news and saying, this has to stop. Someone has to do something. We have to look at ourselves and say, I need to stop being so selfish. I need to stop uh, just meeting my own needs. I need to be more mindful of what's missing in the world that makes this the attractive alternative. If we can sit in prayer with our hunger and thirst, our spirit will be joined with God's spirit because we hunger and thirst for what he desires to see. And our souls can be purified by admitting our complicity in what's wrong with the world. Hunger and thirst are another gate that we pass through into the kingdom of heaven. Another way to connect with God and God's will. When I feel that hunger and thirst, I'm connecting with God and I need to be conscious of that. God, you feel this, don't you? You feel the need. You feel the compassion, don't you? And he does. So we don't have to be afraid of the nightly news. Uh, we don't need to repress the effect that a heart-rending story has on us. We have someone to turn to when it gets to us. We can take our hunger and our thirst to Jesus. And he tells our anxious hearts, yes, I too feel this hunger and thirst Take my hand and we'll feel it together. Take my hand and we'll intercede together. Take my hand and we'll get up and act together. We will be righteous. Rest assured, there's hope. For by my righteousness, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Would you stand with me, please? May our Heavenly Father who created us not to be flawless. He did not create us to be without weakness. He created us dependent on Him. May, may He who knows all things, who knows our neediness, hear our prayers this week for ourselves and for our world and specific individuals and sp specific places on this planet where righteousness needs to reign. And may our hearts beat with his. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, 
and bring us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.